should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Uh, Good evening, everybody. I'm Roy Eisenhart, um, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator tonight for Professor Kermit Roosevelt. Um, As you probably know, he is the great-great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. We discussed beforehand whether there's a shorter word than great-great-grandson in English, but there apparently isn't, so that's what we're stuck with. The... um, Honor of having him here, though, is uh, much more founded in his skill in both his legal background and in his writing ability. He has produced several books on constitutional law, having served as a uh, clerk to the U.S. Supreme Court under Justice David Souter. He's written both novels and books on law, and tonight, there will be at least some discussion about his latest novel entitled Allegiance, which uses as its background the uh, incarceration of Japanese during the Second World War. So that's enough for me. And let me introduce Professor Kermit Roosevelt to you. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you all for coming. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm going to talk about the significance of Theodore Roosevelt's vision of the Constitution. And it's going to connect to some larger ideas about who we are and who we want to be. The Constitution is our central organizing document in America. We have no official religion. The Constitution, in fact, says that we can't. But we give the Constitution the same kind of veneration that some societies give their sacred texts. And it's our loyalty to the Constitution, our allegiance, that makes us American. We're not a nation held together by race or religion. We really are constituted as a people by those 4,400 words. And so when we talk about the Constitution, we're really talking about America and Americans and what those words mean. And that's what I want to do tonight. 
So let me start with Theodore Roosevelt. What was his vision of the Constitution? To put it in one word, it was democratic. And I don't mean that in the sense of the Democratic Party, of course. I mean it in terms of the question, who's supposed to have the ultimate authority in our system of government? TR's answer was the people. Now, in a sense, that's probably uncontroversial. You might think, of course, we the people should be in control. We the people, that's the first three words of the Constitution. We the people are the ones who ordain and establish the Constitution. But that view actually runs up against a couple of other features of our system of government. Basically, everyone agrees the people are the ultimate authority in some sense, but some think that maybe they've delegated some of that authority. For instance, they've delegated the power to make laws to legislatures, and they've delegated the power to interpret laws and to interpret the Constitution to courts. Or have they? This is the area of dispute between Theodore Roosevelt and the more traditional view of the Constitution. TR wants the people to be more directly in control. He believes in the right of the people to rule. That's the title of one of his famous speeches. He believes that the people themselves must be the ultimate makers of their Constitution. That's a line from his speech at the Chicago Convention of 1912. So in TR's view, the American people are the good guys. They're the heroes of our American story. Who are the bad guys? In part, they're corrupt legislators who make laws that favor big business instead of the general public. But perhaps more important, they're judges, judges who use their understanding of the Constitution to strike down laws that the people support. The people want something. They want, perhaps, to make working conditions safer for the poor, or they want to set a minimum wage, or a maximum number of hours per week. And they get the legislature, their representatives, to do this. The legislature enacts this law. In fact, TR, as a New York State Assemblyman, did just this early in his career. But then the judges say that law is unconstitutional. They invalidate it. And this is actually exactly what happened to that law that TR sponsored. And that is perhaps why this issue was so dear to his heart. During his time as a legislator, extending through his presidency and even afterwards, courts were using the due process clause of the Constitution to strike down these economic regulations. So judges were the bad guys in TR's eyes. They were the villains of the story. They were the bad guys because they were stopping democracy. They were preventing the people from exercising their right to rule. They were thwarting the will of the majority. They were instead doing the will of what the Progressive Party called the invisible government, a power that sits enthroned behind the ostensible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people, the Progressive said. These judges, the Progressive said, were part of an unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics. But what did the judges think they were doing? It's an important fact about the world that most people think they're doing the right thing. Villains who embrace evil for its own sake, you really find them only in rather simplistic fiction. So the judges thought they were the good guys. And they thought this because of a particular theory that I'm going to discuss in a little bit of detail because it's going to come back later. Their theory was government has to make laws to make the whole public better off. As they put it, to promote the public interest, to make society as a whole better off. So it would be unconstitutional to have a law that benefited one group at the expense of another, 
or a law that's designed simply to oppress some group. And actually, most people agreed on that. In fact, most constitutional scholars and judges still do. What was different about the judges at the turn of the 20th century was that they thought that things like maximum hour or minimum wage laws did not promote the public interest. They thought those laws were what we would now call special interest legislation. That is, they promoted the interest of one group, the workers, at the expense of another, the employers. So these were laws, according to the courts, that unfairly discriminated against the employers, that oppressed them. So in their own eyes, the courts of this era were the heroes. They were defending the Constitution. They were preventing oppressive discrimination. In the eyes of TR and the progressives, though, they were the villains. They were preventing desirable reform. They were protecting the interests of the wealthy and the powerful. So how do you decide who's right? Well, TR's view was that we should let the people decide what's reasonable and what's oppressive. When judges are called on to make that decision, he said, they should represent the people. And I'm going in the end to say that he was right about that. But he wasn't right in quite the way he thought. And before I explain how he's right, I want to tell you how he's wrong, how his vision of the Constitution proved inadequate. Now, many parts of TR's vision of the Constitution were actually adopted during his lifetime. The 16th, 17th, and 19th Amendments are all actually parts of the Progressive Party platform, the platform on which TR campaigned in 1912. So he lost that election, but as far as the Constitution goes, he won in many ways. But not with respect to the judges. He did not get the judges to back down in terms of using their own views about what was reasonable and what was oppressive. They kept on striking down these laws under the Due Process Clause through the teens and the 1920s and into the 1930s. Then another president comes on the scene, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And FDR, in many ways, was carrying out TR's policies. FDR's New Deal, I think, is in large part a fulfillment of TR's Square Deal. And FDR has the same problems that TR had with judges. They're invalidating laws that the people support, and they're often doing it in the name of the Due Process Clause. But FDR decides to do something about it. He's got four justices who support him already, He's losing these cases by a very narrow five to four vote. And he says he's going to appoint more justices. This is the infamous court packing plan. He doesn't say that the reason he's doing this is to give him a majority of supporters, but that's obviously why. Court packing fails, of course. FDR loses that battle, but he wins the war. The Supreme Court backs down. In 1935, it gives up on the idea that it can define what the public interest is and strike down laws that depart from it. So now the people do get to decide what is reasonable and what is oppressive. And how does that work out? Well, it works out OK in terms of domestic economic regulation. And that's important. The Great Depression was a serious crisis. There should have been a national response from the federal government. The Supreme Court was preventing that. But the Great Depression is not the only crisis that FDR gets. There's another one a crisis that echoes down the years. It finds some parallels in our recent history, and it shapes our modern understanding of the Constitution and the role of judges. On December 7th, 1941, the Empire of Japan attacks the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor. The destruction is enormous. All eight battleships are damaged, two totally lost. Over 300 aircraft are damaged or destroyed, 
and 2,400 service members are killed. More than the material devastation, though, the attack inflicts a psychological injury. Americans aren't used to being attacked at home. Wars are things that are fought across the sea, not on American soil. So the immediate reaction is panic. Are more attacks coming? Is this part of a coordinated series of strikes? In fact, it was, though only one took place in America. And people wonder what's next. In Washington, DC, troops are called out to protect government buildings. People empty supermarkets and hoard food. And government lawyers write memos about what can be done to make the country safe. One idea that they come up with relatively quickly is removing the Japanese and Japanese Americans from the West Coast. And this is in large part the brainchild of one man, a lawyer named Carl Bendetson. At this point, there's a Japanese and Japanese American population of about 127,000 in the United States. They live mostly on the West Coast. The Issei, the first generation of immigrants, are not US citizens. They're not allowed to be. But their children and their grandchildren, the Nisei and the Sansei, are US citizens by virtue of the 14th Amendment's grant of birthright citizenship to anyone born in this country. This population has had some difficulty assimilating because of racism and suspicion. And in fact, before Pearl Harbor, US intelligence agencies investigated the Japanese-American community because they were concerned about possible disloyalty. The conclusion by the Office of Naval Intelligence was that there was no general problem with disloyalty. There might be some disloyal individuals, but on the whole, the Japanese-American community was actually hyper-patriotic and eager to assimilate. As far as suspicious individuals were concerned, the FBI had been keeping tabs on certain community leaders and figures of prominence. And immediately after the Pearl Harbor attack, they went in and they arrested over 5,000 Japanese and Japanese-Americans. That is, most of the men who had any kind of leadership position in the community. And they sent those people to Justice Department camps. And then for some weeks afterward, there was really no talk of mass detention. But public opinion turned against the Japanese Americans. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Outside the government, the push was coming from groups like the Salinas Fruit Growers Association, which wanted to eliminate the economic competition of the Japanese farms, and the native sons of the Golden West, which simply wanted to make California white. Inside the government, it was coming from the War Department, and the Justice Department resisted. This is one of the lesser known elements of this story. The War Department keeps coming to the Justice Department asking for the authority to do certain things. We want to do warrantless searches on Japanese American houses. We want to arrest all of the Bainbridge Island residents. And the Justice Department keeps saying no. Francis Biddle, FDR's Attorney General, keeps saying this is unconstitutional, we won't do it. 
but he isn't in the end willing to take a strong enough stand against these measures and ultimately against the detention program. So in the end, war prevails over justice. FDR issues Executive Order 9066 on February 19th, 1942. It authorizes General John DeWitt, who's the head of the Western Defense Command, to exclude anyone he deems necessary from the military zones on the West Coast. Soon after that, General DeWitt starts issuing his own orders. He imposes a curfew. He tells residents of these military exclusion zones that they should prepare to leave. Some of them do. Seeing the likelihood that they'll end up being sent to camps, they decide to leave early. But this turns out to be possible for only a very small number of people because the interior states are not welcoming. Some families are turned back when they try to cross the state line. The governor of Wyoming says that if they try to come to his state, there will be Japs hanging from every pine tree. So it becomes clear that the federal government is going to have to provide a place to house the people who are being removed. The first actual exclusion orders start on March 24th. On March 27th, General DeWitt issues what's called the freeze order, forbidding Japanese Americans from leaving the military zones except pursuant to his orders. And then the Japanese and Japanese American population, having been frozen in place, is gradually removed. First to temporary assembly centers, which are places like racetracks and fairgrounds nearer to the coast, and then to the relocation camps farther inland. Japanese Americans have different responses to this. Some think that compliance is a way to demonstrate patriotism and loyalty, that this is what their country is asking of them in time of war. That was, at least for a while, the position of the Japanese American Citizens League. Some, on the other hand, think that true patriotism is resistance, that by challenging the program in court, they are defending the Constitution. And some simply don't want to leave their homes. That is, in fact, the story of Fred Korematsu, who wants to stay in San Leandro with his Italian-American fiance, Ida Boitano. So a legal struggle starts in the courts. There are challenges to the curfew. That's a case called Hirabayashi. To the exclusion orders, that's the Korematsu case. And to the detention in camps, which is a less well-known case called Ex Parte Endo. All of those cases are in the novel. But the one that I want to focus on in this talk is Korematsu. The government wins that case. It's a 6-3 vote. There are some pretty bitter dissents. But the majority of the court says, we are not going to second guess the government's decision that it is reasonable to make all the Japanese Americans leave their homes. So that's a bad episode in American history. And certainly there are villains. There's Carl Bendetson, who came up with the plan to detain the Japanese Americans. There's FDR, who let him go through with it. There are government lawyers who presented false information to the Supreme Court in the Korematsu litigation. There are War Department officials who decided to draft the people they had classified as disloyal and imprisoned in camps, and then to prosecute them for refusing to serve. There are people who tried to encourage the imprisoned Japanese Americans to renounce their citizenship, and then to ship them to Japan after the war. But there are heroes, too. There are government officials who fought against the program. There are government lawyers who tried to be honest with the Supreme Court, who tried to get it to do the right thing in the Korematsu case. There's a judge who acquitted some of the draft resistors, and who later ruled that the renunciations of citizenship were not valid. So that struggle between the heroes and the villains, that's the backdrop for this novel, Allegiance. And as I was looking over the historical material, I was wondering how to tell the story 
It's a big story. It's got a lot of different parts. And I was thinking it would have to be a sweeping multi-perspective epic. But then late one night, it occurred to me I could get almost all of it in from one perspective. And I could write it in first person if I picked the right person. And then rather than having multiple perspectives, I could have one person's perspective changing as he grew and learned more. So that's what I did. My narrator in this book, my protagonist, is a guy from Philadelphia, because that's where I'm from. His name is Cash Harrison. He's in law school when Pearl Harbor is attacked. He wants to join the military, but he fails the physical. Then he gets a chance to clerk for Justice Hugo Black on the Supreme Court. He's clerking there for the first of the Japanese-American cases, the one about the curfew. Then after his clerkship ends, he stays in DC. He gets a job working for the Justice Department. And he ends up being the person writing the briefs for the Korematsu case. So it's his job to defend this exclusion and detention program before the Supreme Court. And he gets involved in basically all of these historical episodes that I've described, plus a murder mystery and a love story. <laughs> now, a lot of that, um, a lot of his emotional journey actually parallels mine. Not the murder mystery and the love story, but his basic development. He starts out as an idealist. He believes the government can do no wrong. He thinks the government is America. And then he learns that actually the government can stray from our ideals, that allegiance to the Constitution may not mean blind obedience to the government, that we the people can be better than the government. And that's basically the process that I went through in the years after September 11th, as I learned more and more about what the government had done to keep me safe. But back to the Constitution. How does all this relate to TR and FDR? How does it tell us who are the heroes of the American story? Well, the constitutional provision that Fred Korematsu invoked in his Supreme Court case, the one he said protected him from this government action, was the Due Process Clause. It was the same constitutional provision that the judges that TR and FDR opposed were using to frustrate economic regulation. You can't set a maximum hour law, the judges said, because it's not a reasonable way to promote the public interest. It's oppressing one group to benefit another. The court that decided Korematsu was not willing to make that call. They were not willing to say, this is oppression. Reasonableness, oppression, the public interest, we're going to let the people, through their elected representatives, decide what those are. That was the position of the Korematsu majority. And so now, perhaps, we see the problem with Theodore Roosevelt's vision of the Constitution, where the people get the last word. Korematsu is a chapter in the story where suddenly the people look like the villains, the bad guys. Not all of them, of course. Some people, both inside and outside the government, did say this is wrong. It's un-American. It's unconstitutional. But they were a minority. The majority thought it was OK. Theodore Roosevelt was worried about the tyranny of the minority, about judges taking the side of the small group of powerful people he called the malefactors of great wealth. But there's also the problem of the tyranny of the majority. And that problem, put simply, is that the majority may discount the interests of unpopular groups, of people who are different. And it does this particularly in wartime. It does this particularly when people are scared. That's what you see with the Japanese Americans. The majority thinks, the government says, it's reasonable to make all of these people leave their homes because some of them might be disloyal, and we want to keep the country safe. Now, in fact, it's not reasonable. If you're balancing the harm to the Japanese Americans against the safety gain to the rest of the country, it's entirely unreasonable. It's wildly out of proportion. 
but the majority thinks it's okay, their will prevails, the courts won't stop them. So that's a problem. And in large part, thanks to Korematsu, the Supreme Court actually realized this. They understood pretty soon after that they had made a mistake. They resolved not to make it again. And they started standing up for the rights of racial minorities in cases like Brown v. Board of Education, about segregation in public schools, in cases like Loving Against Virginia, about interracial marriage, and then in cases about the rights of women and the rights of gays and lesbians. And all of these cases, you could say, come from Korematsu, from a lesson that the court learned there about the dangers of letting the majority decide what's a reasonable way to treat a minority. Korematsu is, in fact, actually the first case to say that racial classifications taking away the rights of a minority are especially suspect. But all this leaves us with a little bit of a puzzle. Nowadays, as I said, we have a more assertive Supreme Court. It's more willing to second guess the judgment of the government or the people that something is reasonable. It's a more assertive court, it's a more assertive court than Theodore Roosevelt's vision of the Constitution gave us. And some of the assertive decisions that this court makes are considered great ones. Brown v. Board of Education, or Loving Against Virginia. Some of them are controversial, Roe v. Wade maybe, or the more recent same-sex marriage decision, although ultimately I believe that will be accepted. But some of these decisions are widely considered bad. Citizens United maybe, where the Supreme Court says that corporations have the same speech rights as individuals. Maybe some of the other cases where the Supreme Court protects the rights of corporations and the wealthy. Those decisions actually look a whole lot like the kinds of decisions that TR and FDR were opposing. So the question we have is when is the court justified in coming in to set aside the result of the ordinary democratic process, to say that people can't have the last word? Sometimes it seems like it should, cases like Brown or Korematsu. And sometimes it seems like it shouldn't, the cases pushing back against the New Deal or maybe Citizens United. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is that in the cases where the court was right to come in, you can tell a pretty plausible story about why the dem democratic process won't work, why you can't trust the majority when they say that something is a reasonable way to promote the public interest. The main reason for this is that in most of these cases, the costs of whatever the majority is doing, driving Japanese Americans from their homes, segregating schools, banning same-sex marriage, the costs fall on a group with whom the majority doesn't empathize. People's, people whose interests they are not likely to weigh accurately. Racial minorities are perhaps the clearest example of this, but you could say the same thing about women, you could say the same thing about gays and lesbians. You can't say the same thing about corporations. You can't say the same thing about rich people who want to contribute lots of money to political candidates. These are not people who lack political power. These are not outsiders, people who are viewed with suspicion because they're different, people who are misunderstood. Those are people for whom the ordinary democratic process works just fine. So my claim is that the proper role of courts in a democracy is to protect the people whose interests aren't adequately counted, not to give more power to those who have much already. And this, I think, is something that TR and FDR would both have agreed with. And now the last point which is really the main point. Suppose that judges do what I think they should do, and what I'm saying TR and FDR would also have thought. Suppose that they protect the politically weak, and they don't add to the power of the politically strong. 
Does that mean that judges are the real heroes in the story? The answer is not really. Because if you ask whether judges actually can protect the weak and the unpopular, the answer is, it depends. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. If you look at the equality movements of American history, and there have been basically three major equality movements, race, sex, and sexual orientation, they follow a very precise and similar pattern. First, there's a period of time when most people think that discrimination is justified. Blacks and whites can't ride in the same railroad cars. Women can't practice law. Gays and lesbians can go to jail for same-sex sexual activity. And during this period of time, courts don't interfere. You have the tyranny of the majority. If cases are litigated, you get decisions like Korematsu. And how do things change? The answer is not through the courts, not initially. And this too is something that Theodore Roosevelt saw. If the majority of the American people were in fact tyrannous of the minority, he said, if democracy had no greater self-control than empire. Then indeed, no written words which our forefathers put into the Constitution could stay that tyranny. So it's not the courts, and it's not actually the Constitution. What happens is that a social movement arises to challenge the discrimination, to say this isn't reasonable, this isn't justified, this is oppressive. If that social movement succeeds, 
which is to say, if the American people change their minds, then eventually the Supreme Court steps in and says this discrimination is unconstitutional. No one can do it anymore. Not even in states where a majority still thinks it's okay. And what it's doing there is enforcing the will of a national majority against local majorities, against outlier states that aren't in step with the national consensus. And that is the pattern of all of our major equality decisions for civil rights, for women's rights, for gays and lesbians too. The court is not leading those movements, the court follows. So what does that mean? It means that the values that the Supreme Court enforces are ultimately the values of the American people. It means the judges cannot be better than the people, and it means you cannot rely on judges. Liberty lives in the hearts of the people, said the great judge learned hand. If it dies there, no court can save it. So too for fairness, so too for justice, so most of all for empathy. Empathy is what makes us able to make the distinction between reasonable laws and oppressive ones. Empathy is what lets us understand the costs we inflict on people who are different from us, people who might seem scary or dangerous. So the true heroes of these equality movements are not judges. They're first, the social entrepreneurs who spoke out, and second, we the people who heard them. That is to say, we are the heroes or the villains of the American story. And that's really what the novel is about. It's an attempt to tell you a chapter of that story, to show you the heroes and villains of the past in the hopes that we can learn something for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Roosevelt, very much. And I remind our uh, radio audience that we are listening to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and our guest tonight is uh, Professor Kermit Roosevelt, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. We're going to go to audience questions at the point where they are brought to me. <laughs> uh, but um, meanwhile, let me um, ask you to follow up with the sequel to Korematsu, where there was a judge who was a hero, Judge Marilyn Patel of our own Northern District of California District Court in uh, her treating of the uh, petition for quorum nobis for Fred Korematsu. Yes, so the story of the detention of the Japanese Americans, it's a fascinating one. There are many aspects of it that I really didn't know before I started researching and writing this book. I mean, I knew sort of the general outlines. I thought maybe there would be parallels to the current situation. Um, it turned out the parallels were much more pervasive and more precise than I had realized. And one of them has to do with this. So I mentioned briefly in the talk some of the villains. The villains are government lawyers who present false information to the Supreme Court in the Korematsu case. And what happened here was General John DeWitt, who is pretty much a villain. He's a racist. He's kind of incompetent. I hope there are none of his descendants in the room. Um, <laughs> He writes a report explaining why it was necessary to remove the entire Japanese and Japanese-American population from the West Coast. And he asserts that there are certain specific facts that demonstrate disloyalty among that population. One of these is that there are shore-to-ship radio transmissions, that people are signaling to Japanese ships. Another is that there are signal lights to Japanese submarines. And the Justice Department, 
which has to defend this program, is of course very interested in the factual support for it, because if there's evidence of disloyalty, that would give a good reason why you might think it was necessary to remove the Japanese American population. So they investigate. They have the FCC go and track down these radio transmissions. They have the FBI go and look for the signal lights. And it turns out this is all false. Some of it is made up. Some of it is just mistakes. Um, the Army radio operators in particular seem to be very bad. They're picking up Radio Tokyo and assuming that it's originating in Oakland for some reason. <laughs> so the government knows that this report is false. It's incorrect. Nonetheless, they end up presenting it to the Supreme Court and suggesting that the judges can take judicial notice of it and rely on the factual claims in it. So the government presents false information to the Supreme Court. Later on, this comes out, not for some 40 years, actually, um, when uh, a professor named Peter Irons and uh, a researcher of his named Aiko, do you know the name Yoshinaga, I think? Yeah. Um, they're doing research for a book about the Japanese American detention. They discover that this report was falsified and also it had been changed in some material respects. And they think, hey, that's not very good. You know, a case that the Supreme Court decided based on false information, maybe that should be revisited. And they actually go to court. Um, a lawyer named Dale Manami is also participating in this. Um, and in the end, Fred Korematsu's conviction, much, much after the fact, unfortunately, is overturned. And that's an interesting episode I think because it's also one of the sort of striking parallels to the post 9-11 events, which is the presentation of, of false claims to the Supreme Court. There's a case, um, United States against Hamdi, where the Bush administration, as it always does in these cases, is saying to the Supreme Court, we don't need any judicial oversight of our detention practices because we're the good guys and we don't make mistakes and we really wouldn't do anything wrong, trust us. And some of the justices are skeptical and Justice Ginsburg in particular says, well, you know, what if someone decided that mild torture might help get some information? Some systems of government do that. And Assistant Solicitor General Paul Clement responded immediately, our executive doesn't which was, of course, completely untrue because we had the whole CIA enhanced interrogation torture program going on. In that case, the falsity of the assertion came out somewhat more quickly because that very evening, the Abu Ghraib photos were on the CBS News. <laughs> and it mattered to the Supreme Court, not just that they had been lied to in court, but that this was repeating the pattern of the Korematsu era. Because the Supreme Court, I think, in the post 9-11 war on terror decisions, was quite aware of the historical parallels. Um, Justice Souter actually was reading the Peter Irons book about the Korematsu case. Fred Korematsu himself participated as an amicus curiae, as a friend of the court. He filed a brief in that, that case, the Hamdi case, pointing out the parallels. So the takeaway overall, I think, is Bad things were done, they came to light, and in some ways they were partially rectified when Fred Korematsu's conviction was set aside. Similar bad things happened again. The Supreme Court was a little bit more on its guard 
And I think that if you look at the performance of the Supreme Court after September 11th and compare it to the performance of the Supreme Court during World War II, it's actually doing a better job keeping an eye on what the military does in the name of national security. Thank you. Well, I now have quite a fistful of questions and uh, quite a few good questions. I think, first of all, let me apologize if I don't get to your question because we will clearly run out of time. I'm going to um, go somewhat chronologically just to create a, a, a framework. So the, the first question relates to uh, President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and the antitrust laws. And why was he um, so um, much of an advocate of a strong enforcement of the antitrust laws? Well, that's very consistent with Theodore Roosevelt's philosophy of governance and his political philosophy, which is the government should serve the public interest. The government should enact laws that benefit everyone. He was worried about, as I said, the tyranny of the minority. He was worried that a small number of powerful individuals or powerful interests could exert an undue influence either through the legislature, that they could capture the legislatures and get laws enacted that benefited them, or maybe just through the free market, which you know, can produce dysfunctions if you get monopolies or intense concentrations of power. So what he was doing there was he was trying to minimize the extent to which concentrated power in the hands of private individuals could be deployed for selfish ends rather than to serve the public good. Um, you used the term due process clause, in, particularly in discussing the uh, early um, restraints that the judiciary imposed on Congress's efforts to enact child labor laws and wage hour laws and so forth. Um, could you give a very brief explanation of what due process clause means? I know well, that's a whole course in law school. It's a, that's a, a big and technical and complicated, but also fascinating yeah. legal question. Um, I will try to give just a very short summary of this. Uh, this is something that legal scholars argue about. So the view that I'm going to give you here is my view, which of course I think is right, but not everyone's view. <laughs> um, but the basic idea is people create governments for certain purposes. They delegate to those governments the power to pursue those purposes, but there are some things they would never want the government to do. Therefore, if you see the government doing that, it is not exercising power that the people have given to it, and what it is doing, although it might look like a law, is actually not a law. So if the government, if the legislature decrees that two people who were married are no longer married and instead they're married to other people. It could have the form of a law, it could be enacted by Congress, it could be signed by the president, but this theory of the due process clause says we would never give the government the power to do that. And therefore, even though this looks like a law, it's really not, because we know it is not a proper exercise of power delegated by the people. So what you have there is no law. If you have the government trying to do something but there's no law that justifies what it's doing, it is acting without due process of law. So the words of the due process clause say, the due process clause say that no person shall be deprived 
of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. If the government is doing one of these things that are just completely outside the purpose for which government is created, they're not acting by means of a valid law, so they'll be violating the due process clause. And that's a reasonably persuasive thing to say, I think. The way that it gets a little bit more controversial in the early 20th century is the courts start to say a minimum wage law or a maximum hour law is just taking away from the employers and giving to the employees. And this sort of taking from one person and giving to another person is just like suddenly saying you're not married to your spouse anymore, you're married to someone else. It's the kind of crazy thing that we would never give the government the power to do. And that, I think, is where they go a little bit off the rails. Um, moving to uh, the 1940s, you discussed the um, relocation in California, but could you discuss the uh, somewhat different and maybe anomalous outcome of the uh, treatment of Japanese Americans in Hawaii? Yeah, so the treatment of Japanese Americans in Hawaii is one of the things that maybe suggests something fishy is going on. Because if you're concerned about disloyalty within the Japanese American population and Japanese Americans assisting Imperial Japan and the effect that that might have on US national security, there's a much stronger case to be made with respect to Hawaii, where there's a larger population. It's closer to Japan. Japan actually attacked Hawaii at Pearl Harbor, of course. Um, and there was, in fact, an episode where a Japanese pilot from the Pearl Harbor attack went down and was assisted by some locals. So you could maybe have said some more plausible things about security concerns in Hawaii, and yet um, there was no mass detention. So why does it happen on the West Coast when it doesn't happen in Hawaii? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're thinking from a national security perspective. Um, the premise that the people govern is premised on the assumption that people get the correct information. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, at least we'll accept that as a hypothesis for this question. Um, in today's uh, multiple sources of information, many of which are customized to fit a particular <laughs> point of view, can, can the theory of uh, opinion emanating from the people and being passed up through the legislature and to the court really function? Well, that's a very good question. And, you know, the answer 
is, to some extent, I certainly worry about that. Um, one of the things that people worried about the most when the internet was starting to become more pervasive was that people would self-select the news that they saw and they would live in their own little echo chambers and become significantly misinformed because they would only hear views that they agreed with. The empirical work that I'm aware of suggests that that has not happened to the extent that people feared. It is the case that there's one news channel whose viewers seem to have a number of mistaken factual beliefs. <laughs> and exit polls in the 2004 election, I think, demonstrated this. Uh, so there is a certain amount of misinformation going on. I think that it can be mitigated, at least for my purposes, by, by two factors. One is even low information or misinformed voters can still pick members of a political party that stands for certain ideals. And if you don't know much about what's going on in the world or you don't know much about particular candidates, you can still pick a party. So when I go to vote in Philadelphia, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed, I guess, to admit that there are often lots of races where I don't even, I've never heard these people's names. There are lots and lots of low level city positions. I don't know who these people are. But I still vote in those elections, and not just because I like to wield random power. I vote because I can pick a party, and I know that one of the parties matches my ideology better than the other. So even low information or misinformed voters can pick a political party. Then the other thing is, on some of these questions, actually on the questions where I'm saying the people do have the last word, popular opinion does in effect determine the meaning of the Constitution, they're not really political questions. They're not geostrategic questions. They're not, was there a connection between Iraq and September 11th? They're, who is different from us? Who is like us? Who deserves equality? And who is it appropriate to treat differently? When is it fair to deny people certain rights because of who they are? Those are you know, just sort of moral questions. And you do have situations sometimes where people make those decisions based on misinformation. You know, if you go back 100 years, there's racist science that justifies racial discrimination. Um, there's exaggerated science about biological differences between men and women that justifies sex discrimination. There's pervasive misunderstanding of sexual orientation, which is exacerbated by the fact that many people who do in fact know gays and lesbians don't realize that they know them. But um, in the end, that tends not to persist. I mean, I, I do believe that through personal acquaintance, through life experience, the American people can generally get the right answer on those kinds of questions. Um, I think at this point, this is quite a remarkable question, and I'm going to ask the person who asked this question to stand. Karen Karamatsu, the daughter of Fred Karamatsu. Yes. Oh. Welcome. Yes. yes. Thank you. I, I thought that was uh, appropriate, and because you ask a very important question. Uh, as you, I'm going to read it literally. As you know, Korematsu versus the United States decision still stands as good law, quote unquote, even though it has been discredited. Do you think something like the Japanese-American incarceration could happen again? 
Well, first, let me say thank you for coming. I've been, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. I'm very glad that you're here. Um, and the answer to that question is, I think it could, yes. It's quite clear that there's still a majority of the Supreme Court that is of the view, if it is necessary to protect the country, the government can do just about anything. And the only real question then is, when will the judges be willing to say or be willing to accept the claim that something, say race or religion, correlates sufficiently with danger to make it a permissible classification? And the answer to that is, it depends on how scared people get. Because when people get scared, they distrust people who are different, they see difference as a marker of danger, and they're quite willing to say, maybe not all of those people are bad, but I'm sure some of them are, and I don't really know how to tell the difference, so we're gonna classify them all as dangerous. And in fact, and I know that you know this, um, there was a very recent decision about NYPD religion-based surveillance of Muslims, um, which was challenged. And initially, the claim that it was unconstitutional for the New York Police Department to single out individuals and organizations for surveillance on the basis of their religion, originally that claim was rejected. At the district court level, the judge said something that reads just like the beginning of Justice Black's opinion in Korematsu when he said, this is not an anti-Muslim program, this is an anti-terror program. And he went on to say, the fit is good enough, which is just like what Justice Black said in the Korematsu decision. He said, Fred Korematsu was not detained because of his race, he was detained because we are at war with the Empire of Japan. Now, the happy side to that story, at least so far, is that the district court judge's decision saying this is not an anti-Muslim program, it's an anti-terror program, was overturned. It was overturned on appeal by the Third Circuit, and the judges, uh, the Third Circuit judges, wrote an opinion that explicitly mentioned Korematsu, it explicitly mentioned the detention of Japanese Americans. It said, we've made this mistake in the past, we should not make it again. And I said that I, I know that you know about this because one of the reasons that the judges were aware of the connection, one of the reasons that they framed it in those terms was that there was amicus participation by the children of most of the litigants in the Supreme Court Japanese American detention cases from the World War II era. Thank you. So thank you for, for yes, your service. thank you for that. And interestingly, Korematsu still is cited frequently for the notion that um, we have to have very strict scrutiny when there's classification based on suspect classification, such as race or ethnicity. Um, so even though the court decided it on a completely different theory, they went to great lengths discussing the strict scrutiny standard, which we still use today. It, this leads us to the obvious uh, question about today's um, presidential campaign and the dialogue around um, fear and control over immigration, particularly immigration based on uh, ethnicities. So the question which several people allude to is, do you see the roots of another Korematsu type of classification in some of the dialogue we're listening to today in the presidential campaign? I think that 
the attitudes and the reaction underlying that rhetoric is exactly the same as what led us to Korematsu and to Japanese-American detention. I think that there's a pattern that repeats itself that when we get attacked, particularly when we get attacked in a surprising, unexpected way, we get scared. And when we get scared, we draw the us-them line a little bit closer around ourselves. And you can see this, I think, in the criticism of the 14th Amendment's birthright citizenship principle. So it's not enough, some people are saying now, it's not enough to make you an American if you were born here. Those people are not necessarily real Americans. Real American, that means something else. And generally what they mean is it means someone more like me. So in times of national insecurity, there's a tendency to draw the us-them line more tightly, to decide that people who are different might be dangerous, and then to decide once you've put them on that other side of the line that just about anything you do to them is justified if it might make the real Americans safer. So that's a kind of thinking that leads us to commit injustices. It leads us to do it over and over again through American history. We do tend to regret them relatively soon thereafter. We frequently say, we'll learn from the past, this will never happen again. And I think that we've made some progress, but certainly it's a pattern and a cycle that we need to be aware of and that we need to be on our guard against. But who can be the counter voice for uh, reminding us of history? Uh, it, it's very difficult for someone campaigning for president to do so, for the, just the dynamics you describe. Um, if you have selective uh, choice on your news broadcasts, that you're not gonna hear a counter voice there. So how, going back to your thesis about uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the people, how do the people have a forum in which to point out the counterproductiveness of the syndrome you described? Well, it's a challenge for the people. It's certainly a challenge for the people if they're misinformed by their media sources, because then they're gonna get very distorted impressions of what the actual risks are, what the dangers are. We need people to be brave. We need the American people to be brave. We need the American people to have empathy. We need the American people to be able to recognize the humanity and the worth in everyone who walks this earth. That's maybe asking a lot. You know, certainly we're not gonna be perfect. I don't, I don't expect us to be perfect anytime in the foreseeable future. I hope that we can be better than we have been in the past. I think that our courts are better than they have been in the past. And I think our courts are better because they learned from history. As I said, I talked to Justice Souter the summer before some of these Bush administration war on terror cases were decided, and he had been reading this book by Peter Irons, Justice at War, which describes the struggle inside the Justice Department and some of the malfeasance um, that the government engaged in. And I think he definitely was impressed by that history. I think if you look at the Supreme Court's decisions in those cases, they certainly did learn from the history. And I think that the efforts of Fred Korematsu and, and Karen and other people 
to remind the courts of the relevance of that history is very, very valuable and very important. Mm -hmm. Do you feel President Obama's uh, address, he pointedly addressed this issue last night about not classifying on generalities um, with regard to Muslims. Do you feel as though he was an effective voice in, in that speech? Well, I hope he was. You know, it, it really does come down to what people are willing to hear, what people are willing to listen to. And I, you know, I think it cannot be emphasized enough that it's ISIS's goal to turn tolerant Western societies into societies that oppress their Muslim populations. Because ISIS wants everyone to feel that there is an inevitable clash between Islam and the West. They want everyone to believe that Muslims cannot coexist peacefully in Western countries. And they want that to happen by attacks from their side and they want it to happen by repression from our side. And they hope that the two will feed on each other. And that's a road that we really don't want to go down. Right. Maybe FDR got it absolutely right when he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Excellently put. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you, Professor Roosevelt. Thank you. We appreciate it very much. And, and, and thank you, Karen Karamatsu. For being Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.